Good morning. There we go. Uh, I can't give you a passage to turn to immediately because we're going to be all over the place. Again, a uh, couple disclaimers real quick. Like I said, I sound like, at least to myself, in my head. Um, if, I, if I yell, it's because I, the volume is all messed up in my head. I don't sound... Uh, I could have been singing like really loud, I don't know, because uh, it was like everything sounds muffled. Uh, anybody else have any of that going on right now? All right, yeah. So uh, anyways, we will, uh, we will get through this. Another disclaimer. Uh, again, we're going to be all over the place in your Bible, so I, I encourage you to, uh, uh, to do that, uh, to, to have your Bible out and run with us as we... Uh, as we attempt to bring to a close this week and next week our series on the gospel and kingdom. I was sharing with someone at the end of the service last week that it's a challenge as a, as a teacher when you come to the end of a series uh, because you've got so much collective, like collected information that you're trying to help people under, like tie it all together. Uh, so there's, a, there's an amount of natural recapping and rehashing that like, has to go on. Um, and so trying to squeeze all of that in, plus trying to build upon all of that material is a challenge. And then to try and help a group of very diverse individuals, you know, in our case, 30 to 40 people, uh, as a pastor and shepherd trying to help everybody kind of grab a hold of that as a challenge. And so I would just, uh, in that, ask you to pray for me uh, and pray for us as we try to understand God's Word together. So uh, the last disclaimer is this. In light of having lots to talk about, if I sound like it's on hyperdrive, like a few of you have said that I have been the past few weeks, uh, it's because I am uh, and I've been drinking lots of coffee to make sure that I can do it, particularly this morning. So... Uh, try to keep up. Uh, we're going to rock and roll, okay? Uh, I, hope, I hope for most of you it means you have to stay on the edge of your seats and not nap time because I sound like a, a, like a rolling mumble, you know? Uh, so I try to vary up the pace and the volume and the pitch of my, all of that to help try and keep us in tune. So with all that said, let's start. Imagine you walk into a kitchen, you walk home, you walk home, and you walk into the house, and from the kitchen you smell this wonderful, delightful, delicious smell of fresh baked cookies, right? So just pick your favorite cookie. Sarah asked me what my favorite was the other day. Uh, I said, I think it's chocolate chip, fresh baked chocolate chip. Once they get hard, I'm like, ugh. Might as well eat the ahoys or whatever they're called. Those are disgusting. Fresh, baked, chewy, where the chocolate's still warm. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you smell that, right? So just name your favorite cookie, and that's what you walked in and you smelled. Or your favorite chicken, you know, whatever suits you. Uh, I would prefer, like, steak, you know. But cookie, walk in, smell it. Ah, oh, it smells good. And you know me, if you know me, I'm not a big sweets person. Uh, you know, a mocha, that's, that's about the most sweets I get. You know, the chocolate syrup and that. Other than that, so for me, chocolate chip cookies are like, ah, that's good. 
To my wife, it's brownies. So if you want to make her happy, get her brownies. So anyways, all that. Back in. You smell that. And you walk into the kitchen, right? And if you're like me, you're like, ooh, how much can I sneak, right? Like, I want, I'm, I'm so the key is just, just walk in and take one. You just don't ask. You just go in, and you take one and walk away. And then they come back and go. Or I do have to tell you this funny story. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail right off the bat. Um, the other day, we made some cookies, like the little Hershey Kiss ones on the top. You know what I'm talking about? Well, we were, Sarah had put all these on top of the stove. They were all done, just waiting for them to cool down. And we walked to the back room, and chaps like nowhere to be found for a while. And we finally realized when it's quiet in the house that something not so good is happening. And then we thought, oh, crap, there's cookies on the countertop. So we went out, and no joke, like half of the cookies on the cookie sheet had bites taken out of them. And Chapman standing there with chocolate all over his face. Because it was still cold, right? Or still hot. So you walk in, you, you smell this delicious taste, uh, this delicious smell, I should say. And, and you walk in the kitchen, and the cook says, uh, you're not allowed to have any right now, but you can have a little nibble. Right? So you just take a little bite of one of those cookies. But you know, beyond that little bite is a whole, the rest of that cookie, and then all the other cookies in the kitchen. But you can only have a taste. But you know that at some point, whether it's later that night, or tomorrow, or 30 minutes later, you're going to get the rest of those cookies. All that you could want. That is a lame attempt to describe the fact that we already get a taste of the kingdom of God without getting to experience the fullness of that until a later time. And that is the age that we're in now. It's kind of like we walked into the house. You can smell the aroma coming from the kingdom, and you were given a taste of it. But you must sit and wait and go about the business that God has given you to do while you wait for the rest of the kingdom to come. And that's the age that we live in now. What we call, today we're going to call the proclaimed kingdom. And we're going to discover why do we call it the proclaimed kingdom. And I want to recap for us very, very quickly. We have, we've talked about, we started off with the pattern of the kingdom. So again, the kingdom is God's people and God's place under God's rule. The question was asked to, to Rusty uh, last week, where do we see the kingdom? Like, where do you get that from in the Bible? You get it everywhere. I hope you see that now. You, see, you get it everywhere. You see God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then you see them not. And then you see God's redeeming them back into that. And then you see them failing still at being God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so we see, but we see this pattern initially started in the garden. It's not the perfect kingdom. Like we think of perfection in the garden, but that perfection had an end point to it. So ultimately the perfection would fail. So I, well, I don't think we can call that the perfect kingdom because eventually they would fall, but we call that the pattern of the kingdom. So that gives us what it should look like, but again, just a type of what it will be eventually in the new creation. That'll be the perfect kingdom. 
So the pattern of the kingdom. Then we see them pe- the perished kingdom. So that's when they are, they're uh, forbidden. They're, they're kicked out of the garden. Then we see the kingdom is basically uh, destroyed. At least the pattern of the kingdom is. Then we see the promised kingdom in Abraham. Where God is saying, I, through your seed, am going to bless the nations. And I'm going to reestablish. I'm going to bring back my kingdom. Then from there, we see what we call the partial kingdom. This is the time of the Israelites, and, and they're living this, this, where there are God's people in the land of Canaan, in God's place, under God's rule. But, but again, during this time, it's not perfect, right? I mean, they're failing and failing, and then God's bringing them back, and then they're failing, and God brings them back, and they're failing, and God brings them back, and over and again. And, and so, but this is, at this point, subsequent of the garden, pre-fall, subsequent of the fall, God is, this is the, probably the best picture thus far of what that kingdom is going to look like. We see this in the partial kingdom. But we know that this kingdom is simply a type of or a foreshadowing of what we'll ultimately see in Jesus in that kingdom. So then during the partial kingdom, where it's, where it's the best picture we have so far, but it's still not quite, we, here comes the prophets talking about the prophesied kingdom. That eventually there will come a kingdom where this is not the case, where we, we succeed and we fail, and we succeed and we fail. Well, not ultimately succeed, but we're doing well, and then we fail, and we're doing okay, and then we fail. And, but at a time where the law and God's desires will become ours as we are transformed from the inside out. And as our hearts are transformed, and God no longer lives in a temple, but he lives inside of us. And then that will all then be clicking away towards perfection. When we reach heaven, when the new creation, when the kingdom in its full reality has come upon us. This is what the prophets are talking about. And then we see Christ comes. We see the kingdom in Christ. And then post-Christ, Christ, we live in now what we are going to call the proclaimed kingdom. The proclaimed kingdom. So, with that, we have seen so far how Jesus fulfills all the promises of God. How in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. He is the one, again, to whom the whole Old Testament points. He's God's king. He's the Messiah. What's interesting with Jesus is once the disciples figure out that Jesus is God's king, they expect the kingdom to come at once, right? Like they're expecting like, you know, big army come raining down and the Romans to be overthrown and the, the kingdom, the, the throne to be established and, and all of its glory. And that they expect that. They expect the government to be overthrown and, and all that that entails And the prophets spoke of a great division that would come. God's adversaries would be judged and his people would be vindicated. But instead, what happens? Jesus dies. Like, what kind of a savior is that? He comes, he's supposed to to vindicate his people and, and the enemy's destroyed. And what's he do? He dies. What's the deal? 
But it's at that point that God's enemies are defeated. And it's at that point that God's people are vindicated. So the response of the disciples at the death of Jesus is discouragement. But what they don't understand, and they eventually will, but what they don't understand initially is that if God's kingdom is going to come, then Jesus has to die. It's a necessity for God's kingdom to come. And then Jesus' resurrection marks the hope of, or marks the, the, the beginning of the hope of the disciples in Jesus as the true Savior. But the fullness of the kingdom will have to wait until the second coming of Jesus. Now, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, if you know what I'm even talking about, it doesn't matter. It's Jesus' second coming, that's when the kingdom will be at its perfection. So, in these last days, when I say these last days, it could be another thousand years. Right? I know everyone in our age is like, yeah, Jesus is coming back before you all die. Like, I've been told that my whole life. And he might, and I hope he does. Uh, but I don't think, like, even to begin thinking through that, we just need to consider that post-Jesus, it's been the last days. And it's been the last days for 2,000 years. If we think of the last days as, oh, man, it's going to be like in the next decade, I, I, your definition of last days uh, is probably a little narrow. So last days, it could be another 1,000 years. But nevertheless, we're in these last days. This time period is the gap between Christ's first and Christ's second return. And then we live in this period. We sometimes refer to this period, and we're going to dive more into this today, as the already not yet. The kingdom is already here, but yet not yet completely here. Yet it is completely here, but yet it's not completely here, right? All right, so and I know you're going like, whoa. So Jesus, in Jesus, the kingdom is complete. And if you can think about this too, in God's mind, he is outside of time. His kingdom is already complete. And those of us inside of time are still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom or the completion of that kingdom. So the kingdom has come with come now with the appearance of Jesus and through his death and resurrection Jesus even spoke of the kingdom as a reality in his day but Jesus saying the kingdom is upon you at the same time the kingdom is something to be anticipated for in the future so something to look forward to so Jesus will return and then we will receive the whole thing so we're waiting. We're in this time period. Matthew 25, verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we have yet to inherit the fullness or the full reality of that kingdom. And yet when we receive Jesus as our Savior, the kingdom is ours. But our experience of it is limited. So we have placed our trust in Christ. We belong to the new creation, but we have not yet received all of its blessings. Does that make sense so far? 
We have part of it, but not all of it. Yet they are all ours. We've just yet to receive them. Make sense? You understand like an inheritance, right? Mom and dad have this that I'm going to get at some point, so it is as good as mine. It's just not mine in my possession yet. And yet, Christ is all ours. So, what about this time period that we live in? We need to talk about some characteristics of this time period. So what we're going to talk about is, is uh, basically God and the Holy Spirit and our role during this time period. Then we're going to talk about the kingdom of God in this time period. And then we're going to talk about some implications of that during this time period. So that's kind of the paint the picture of where we're going. So first, characteristics of, uh, of God and the Holy Spirit during this time period and our role in that. That's where we're going first. So first point with that. God delays so that the gospel can be proclaimed to the nations. I think we ask, we need, if we're being thoughtful Christians, we're going to ask the questions, well, why did, why has Jesus waited 2,000 years? Why is it 2,000 years? What's the point? I mean, God does things with a purpose. Sometimes he reveals them, sometimes he doesn't. But we have to ask the question, why? Why has God waited 2,000 years? Let's look at what Peter has to say about this. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 9. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has purposefully delayed the return of his son so that the gospel might transform more people. Do you understand the mercy of God in that? That the gospel might transform more people. This is why we call it the proclaimed kingdom. Because it is the age of gospel proclamation to the nations. That is the age we live in. And we'll say more about this in a bit. But if we are not about proclaiming the gospel to the nations, to our neighbors, to our family members, then the Spirit does not live inside of us. We're going to see why in a bit. Let's move forward. Listen to Jesus' words here. Luke 24, 46-49. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We see here a command to proclaim the gospel in all the world. And we see a promise here. That is the presence of what we will later come to find out is the Holy Spirit. We'll see the presence, the promises, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we see a command, proclaim the gospel in all the world. Promise the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and ours as well. But listen to the disciples. Now again, we're kind of jumping around here, but Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
So Jesus is getting ready to ascend, and he's, well, is it this time? And I think their question reveals how little they understand of what Jesus taught them. They still have not grasped two things. So this is post, so Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead, he lives here for a period, and then he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, and this is when they ask, is it at this time you'll restore the kingdom? A couple things they don't understand. First of all, that Jesus' concern is not limited to Israel. It's for all people everywhere. Secondly, they still do not realize that there must be a delay. If this is to happen, there must be a delay. The gospel must go forward. Jesus responds, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1 of Acts. He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the angel says in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taking up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then the disciples now have a job to do, as do we. Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, what? The end will come. And then the end will come. There's a sense, I don't have time to go into this, there's a sense in which the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations before Jesus returns. And you go, okay, well, what's he waiting on? Well, we know that there are people groups around the world that have never heard of the name Jesus. They've never heard of the gospel. Now, we don't know that our division of people groups is the same as God's division of people groups. But what we do know is that in this age, that the gospel has not gone forward to all those people. That does not mean that until we check them off our list that Jesus can come back. That's not what I'm saying. But as long as God has not returned, as long as Jesus has not returned, then the delay is for the purpose of gospel proclamation. The gospel to transform people's lives. And so now that we have this job to do, he talks about the Spirit. The Spirit will come upon you. And that's kind of our next characteristic of this time, is that the Holy Spirit now dwells within His people. The Holy Spirit now dwells within His people. This is very different than Jesus coming to live in our hearts, okay? This is different. I know some of us have had some conversations about this, and, and they've all been profitable, I hope. The Bible talks about coming to Christ. I think where we get this, coming, uh, asking Jesus into our heart, I think some of that, I'm trying to find a theological foundation. It's kind of hard for that. But uh, I think where we kind of try to come at that is by saying, when, when Jesus talks about you know, the children coming with, like, with childlike faith, or we say with childlike faith, childlike faith Faith does not entail a oversimplification of facts. Does that make sense? 
So it's not a matter of our kids just need to understand some very, like, things so simplified that it doesn't even look like the gospel. That's not what he's talking about. It's a faith. It's a faith where I don't understand all the pieces of this, but I have, have this faith that it's, it's kind of a, uh, we think of a child and their faith like in a mom and dad. It's a faith that is, um, what's the words? Just knows no bounds. It's a faith where I don't, you know, I might be jumping off a 30-foot thing, but I know mom and daddy's going to catch me. It's a faith. Um, even that fails at explaining it, I, I, I'm afraid. But it's a faith. So it's not, a, it's not an oversimplification of the contents of the gospel, which I think asking Jesus into our hearts is. Um, I think what we've done is we've tried to dumb down the gospel that instead of, so if we take the components of the gospel, infinitely evil people in desperate need of a Savior who need forgiveness of their sins by placing their trust in Jesus Christ who died in their place, that has all been summarized into you're a bad person, right? You want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy, right? So ask Jesus into your heart. And that's become the gospel. But here... We're talking about the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts, just as God did in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, but this is post a transformation that takes place in our heart that's been caused by the Holy Spirit, right? That's been brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not going to be a, a sermon on soteriology or salvation, but this idea of the Holy Spirit coming to live into our in our lives and dwell in us is not this, Jesus is knocking on your door and let him come in. It's a, the Holy Spirit has brought about repentance in our lives and then he necessarily takes up residence just as God did in the tabernacle or the temple. So, why, let me, let me, let me back up. Uh, why then, so, if, if, let me back up, all right. So the Bible never talks about Jesus coming to live in our hearts, right? Coming to live in our lives. Instead, the Bible talks about, as we're going to see today, about the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So then why then, if following our logic of salvation prayers with our kids, why don't we ask, instead of Jesus to come into our hearts, we ask the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts? That would at least make a little more theological sense uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to come reside. Now we might sound like Pentecostals, so that might be the bad thing there. Uh, you know, praying for the Spirit early, initially, instead of later. Um, anyway, some of you get that. Uh, but what's the problem with that? The problem with that is the Holy Spirit's purpose is to point people to Jesus. It's to highlight Jesus. It's to bring Him to the forefront. So why would we pray to bring the Holy Spirit into our lives for salvation when it's Jesus? And the Holy Spirit's role is to bring about Jesus. So that doesn't even make sense for us to pray that the Holy Spirit would, as far as a salvific act, that the Holy Spirit would come into our, our lives. But instead, when we exercise repentance and faith in Jesus, then subsequently the Holy Spirit indwells in us as God indwelled temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. 
the next thought is that Christians don't have long to wait before the coming of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of a little purposeful rabbit trail on the whole asking Jesus into our heart. Now we're back into the vein of Holy Spirit indwelling people. And then now the, the disciples don't have to wait long after Jesus' ascension for the Holy Spirit to then indwell them. They're gathered in one place. And again, we're doing a quick overview here. But Pentecost, you all are familiar with Pentecost, right? In Acts. They're gathered in one place on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Immediately they begin to preach the gospel. Someone's thing just beeped at me. Uh, yeah, it was Greg's iPad. Uh, all right, moving back on. All right. <laughs> all right. Where was I at? Pentecost, yes, thank you. And they began to preach in other languages, right? Other tongues. God is not, let me, let me say that, let me, let me paint this picture. All right, this is where a biblical theology is really crucial. He's not giving the gift of tongue speaking, like speaking in tongues at this point. That's not what's going on. And we, we go, okay, well, this is the charismatics. This is the beginning of speaking in tongues. No, 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 no. What's going on? Think back to the Old Testament. What happened at the Tower of Babel? What? Their languages were divided. They went separate ways. They were confused. What is God doing here at Pentecost? He's reversing that. He's reversing the confusion and the division among the nations so the gospel can go forward through all the nations. That's what's happening here at Pentecost. It's not just simply giving us this really cool thing that we can do and makes us look spiritual. That's not the point. The point is for the gospel to go forward to the nations. Not so that we can run around and look spiritual. Peter explains, Acts 2, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On all flesh. So we can sometimes call, or we can call these last days the, the age of the Spirit. The age of the Spirit. Now he was active before this age. I mean, don't, don't, don't just go, okay, the Holy Spirit's here now, and where's he been since the hovering over the waters in Genesis? No, he's been here the whole time. But in the Old Testament, he had lived only within certain special individuals, like kings, prophets, to equip them for particular tasks. But now God will fill all of his people. All will have the power to prophesy in his name. You see that? What the Old Testament prophets were a type of is all of God's people being prophets in, pro in the sense of proclaiming the gospel to the world. The rest of Acts tells the story of how this begins to happen. The, Acts, Acts, the book of Acts is not primarily about the New Testament church. It's not primarily about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's primarily about the word going forward. About the gospel going forward and being proclaimed. So God, once again, is patient and still delaying his judgment so that this can happen. And it's our responsibility then to tell the good news. Our third big point is that the work of the Spirit is to see the kingdom of God become a reality in the lives 
of his people. Become a reality in the lives of his people. What, what does this mean? First of all, the Holy Spirit brings new birth. Again, this is what's happening now in this age versus what's happened in the prior age. Now the Holy Spirit brings about a new birth. This is what was lacking in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament, this is what was lacking. Now it brings about a new birth. This is something new from the inside. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, if you're familiar with the story, if not, I encourage you to go back and read it. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, he's saying this to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. Real quickly, he's telling Nicodemus that in order to be saved, something must happen to you that you cannot do yourself. The church can't do this for you. You cannot do this for yourself. How many of us, the question I would pose, how many of us decided the day that we were going to be born? Huh, I think I'll be born today. Anybody? Yeah. Some of us are like extra smart and in the womb. We were like, all right, time to punch out this clock. We're moving on to the next life. No! I mean, Jesus is not being a dummy. I mean, he knows what birth is. I mean, that wasn't just a bad metaphor for Jesus to use. No, he used it on purpose. He was telling Nicodemus, in order to be saved, it has to bring, be brought about in a way that you can't do it. I mean, we are by nature rebels and would never repent on our own and put our trust in God. To think otherwise is ludicrous. Just read the Bible. It's not going to happen. A miracle must take place, and the Holy Spirit performs this miracle. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I don't have time to discuss water versus Spirit. But Jesus taught that to be born again, we need to be born of the Spirit. John 16, 7 through 1, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, this is Jesus, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Spirit convicts us of our sin and then points us to Jesus as the one who can deal with it. That's key. We don't go to Jesus on our own. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin and then points us to Jesus. If we are convicted of our sin and pointed to anywhere but Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit. So when you feel guilty about the wrong things you do and then you run and your mind's telling you to run to pragmatism or telling you to, to run to this self-help book or telling you to run to your closet in tears and cry and it's not pointing you back to Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points us back to Jesus. If it's pointing anywhere else, it's probably your sinful, my sinful self pointing me elsewhere. That's why a mature believer, when they sin, instead of running away from the doctor, they run to the doctor. Because the Holy Spirit is driving them to the gospel, to Jesus. So he opens our eyes to understand the truth about Jesus and enables us to put our trust in him. We cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit. That's why salvation, just real quick, we talk about regeneration. That's when our heart turns from darkness to light. 
That's a word that we used to describe as, as reformed and reformed theology. We're going to talk about it a little more in a little bit. But reformed theology, we, we, we believe that regeneration comes about. What happens is the Holy Spirit turns our heart from darkness to light. And then as, as a necessary response to that, we then place our faith in Jesus Christ. Like our heart, it's at that point that we would say our heart is being born again. That's the new birth. And only the Holy Spirit can bring that about in us. John, did you do it? Just study that and look that up. So he opens our eyes to understand the truth about Jesus and enables us to put our trust in him. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So it's at that moment we are born again and he comes into our lives. And look, it would be stupid for him to say God that he has chose you if God has not chosen some and not chosen others. Right? It wouldn't make any sense. God has clearly chosen some and not chosen others. Not for us to know who. But we see that. So the Holy Spirit comes upon certain people to bring about salvation. Um, and others he does not. But it's at that moment when the Holy Spirit works that when he turns our heart from desiring darkness to desiring light, that the necessary response to that is when we see the light, right? When you see the light, you run towards it. Right? When you see that which is good for you, you run towards it. But this again is brought out by, by the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit living within them. Because we could not be Christians otherwise. This is post-Jesus, right? Pre-Jesus, we could be believers without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we can't. It's a necessary uh, aspect of salvation now post-Jesus is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We often ask questions, you know, how do I know I'm saved? Well, I would ask, do you, I would say, a good question to ask, do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Then you have to go, okay, well, how do I know what the work of the Holy Spirit looks like in my life? then you have to read your Bible, okay? He'll show you what that looks like. It doesn't look like, well, I'll just leave it at that. He tells you what it looks like. The Bible is very clear about that. So, the Holy Spirit living within them, all believers has this. Then the miracle of new birth is produced by the Spirit through God's Word. All right, so this is another kind of key thing. The miracle of new birth is produced by the Spirit through God's Word. Word. Because see, in our day, we have denominations that like to separate out the Word from the Spirit. So Baptists like to take the Word and just throw the Spirit out with the bathwater. And Charismatics like to take the, the Holy Spirit and just throw the Word out the window as well. And they're both wrong. It's both and. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit and the Word. We should never divide the Word and the Holy Spirit as if they operate in different spheres. 
They operate in the same sphere and they operate together. Ephesians, listen to Paul and Peter. Ephesians 6.17, this is Paul of course. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Spirit's sword is the word of God. The Spirit uses the word of God. Not the Spirit operates on his own agenda, or the Word operates without the power of the Spirit. That's a both and. Peter says, 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. Through the living and abiding Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is, sorry, it is as the Word of God is proclaimed that the Spirit works to call people to Christ. So you say, well, all right, well, what's, how does this tie into the big picture? If we are in the age of gospel proclamation, and now the Holy Spirit dwells in us, how do we proclaim the gospel? We proclaim we, the gospel by proclaiming the Word. Well, the Word defines what the gospel is, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word as we proclaim it to transform people's hearts. So, what that means is that the idea, well, I can just live like Jesus and people will come to Jesus. No, 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 no. It has to be a both and. Both your life reflecting the kingdom and you proclaiming the kingdom. Proclaiming the truth. And the Holy Spirit uses that. Now, what I don't mean, like some of us go, okay, well, that means i got to take my Bible and beat people over the head with it. No. Uh, I don't have time to, we can talk about this in house counting, but what does that look like to proclaim the kingdom to people? Uh, and I think that what it looks like to proclaim the kingdom to people is going to be a very direct reflection of what it looks like for the kingdom to become a reality in our lives. And so I think sometimes, I'm going to be a little mean here, but oftentimes we proclaim the kingdom in such a way that is not helpful because we don't understand the kingdom in our lives rightly. So, what we talked about last week, if we want to understand rightly our identity and who we are, we have to rightly understand Jesus and who He is. And then as we do that, we will reflect it rightly, at least the best that we can at that point in our journey. So if we want to reflect that, we need to know Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, moving on, the Holy Spirit equips us to serve Christ. So we talked about the Holy Spirit's role in new birth. The Holy Spirit re- equips us to serve Christ. All right, a couple more comments. We cannot claim to be filled with the Spirit as individuals or as a church if we are not active in evangelism. All right? If you're not active in sharing the gospel with people, you cannot claim to be filled with the Spirit Therefore, you cannot claim to be a Christian. Why? Because if we have a theology of the Holy Spirit, we understand that the Holy Spirit's whole goal and purpose is to point people to Jesus. That means pointing our soul to Jesus. And then if we know Jesus in the process, then we'll proclaim Jesus to the world. We will always proclaim something to the world. It's a matter of whether it's the right thing or all of the wrong things. But if we have the Spirit, then we will be active in sharing our faith. So the Spirit equips us to serve Christ. The Spirit also equips us in our ministry to one another. 
Spiritual gifts for the benefit of other Christians. We talked about this in Romans 12. Spiritual gifts, those kind of things. That's what we're talking about there. Moving on. The Holy Spirit produces holiness. The Bible uses three tenses to speak of salvation. I don't have time to go through all these, but we have to trust in Christ for the time that we are saved, for the time that we're being saved, and then at the completion of our salvation. This is a big misconcept, particularly in Baptist churches, that we think of salvation as limited to just the moment where I ask Jesus to come into my heart. Paul talks about working out our salvation. Now, yes, at that moment that we are redeemed, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, our perseverance is guaranteed, but Paul talks about as we are persevering. That's why persevering, I think, is better than eternal security because it talks about us working towards heaven. Not us working, but God working so powerfully. I mean, Philippians 2. But we are working towards heaven. We are working out our salvation. Yes, it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, not by works, but what He has done. So we are working through this. So salvation is spoke. So this holiness, when we talk about needing the Spirit, we need the, the Holy Spirit, needing the gospel, we need it for the moment we are saved, the moments we're being saved, and then the we're still needing for all of eternity, right? So, the Holy Spirit produces holiness. Let me give you something I was reflecting on the other day. I was a little discouraged. I was actually telling Sarah about this yesterday. Uh, oftentimes, look back on my life, look back, say, three months ago, uh, and go, man, what was I doing? Like, every aspect, ministry, man, wh- what was I teaching? Like, how was I leading? And I look back and I go, man, ugh, like, what was I thinking? And like, I hate that, right? I mean, you hate that, right? Looking back, going, man, what was I doing? If you don't do that, you should try it sometime. Uh, it's probably a good thing to do. And then, but then, I, I'm like, so as, as much as I long to not have those moments, when I look back and go, man, I was messed up then. As much as I long to not have those moments, I long more to have those moments because what that means is that who I was three months ago, I'm no longer today. And so if I get to the point, like in three months from now, I look back and go, man, I was doing, I was good and nothing's changed, that's a problem. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts to bring about holiness. You should be holier today than you were a week ago than you were three months ago. That's all going to be relative. We're going to grow at different speeds, and God's going to work on different areas of our lives. For some of us, it might be for the next three months, God's going to pound your thought life. Maybe for the next three months, God's going to pound your emotional life. And He's going to focus on different areas, and He knows that's what's best. But the point is, is are you growing in holiness? Because the, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, then you will be growing in holiness. Not in morality, right? I mean, in morality, but not morality for morality's sake, but growing in holiness for God's sake. All right, so next, so now we're talking about kind of aspects of the Holy Spirit and God and us during this age. Now let's talk about the kingdom of God during this age. We are God's people. We are God's people. We are God's people. So first of all, let's talk about what do we mean by the people of God? 
But we're going to have to, I'm going to jump into a little bit of a rabbit trail here for just a few moments. So hang with me. But I think it's good for us to talk about this at this moment to understand what we mean by we are God's people. What I don't mean by that is that the church has simply replaced the nation of Israel. Now, there's implications for if we simply replaced the nation of Israel. Uh, Reformed theologians, sometimes some of you know what I mean by that, and if not, it's okay for right now, are often accused of believing that the church just simply replaces the nation of Israel. I don't believe, I don't even think that that's theologically possible to say simply that the church replaces the nation of Israel. We don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that the Israel has been displaced by the church. But instead, we believe that God pruned off many Jews in judgment for their disbelief. Then God grafted in Gentiles by faith. Right? And we're going to keep working down this. So, I think this view promotes continuity of God's faithfulness to both believing Jews and Gentiles from the Old Testament on into the new. So, if I could summarize what I think the Bible teaches is that there is one people of God. This includes people of Jewish and Gentile descent. The common factor is saved by grace through faith. I want to show you a chart you know, I don't typically show pictures and stuff. I want to show you this chart. I think this is helpful. Go ahead and throw it up there, Adam. It's a little blurry, but that's okay. On the left, we have national Israel, and then we have believing Israel. Not all of Israel was saved. I hope we know that by now. But there was believing Israel. But on this side, we have believing Gentiles and then unbelieving Gentiles. There was still, well, I'll just leave it at that. And then the believing Israel and believing Gentiles are considered the people of God, granted grace and salvation. Believing Israel, believing Gentiles equal the people of God. So, let's move on from that. Believing Israel. In the Old Testament, believers consisted... Of those of prime uh, consisted primarily of those of Jewish descent. That's clear. It's not debated. Clearly, the Jews made up majority of those saved in the Old Testament, but not exclusively Jews. There were Gentiles saved. For instance, Ruth. So Ruth is an example of a Gentile salvation in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42.6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So you say, well, why do we quote that? I think that verse shows us the purpose of the Jews and their relationship to God. It was to be a light to the nations. Other translations translate that as Gentiles. The Gentiles would be anybody that's not a Jew. So the purpose of the Jews as God's people was to be a light to the nations, to the world. Again, so the grand purpose of the Jews was to be that. I mean, among other things. But, but then once Jesus comes, 
Some Jews accept him as their Messiah, but most do not. Some Jews accept him, but most do not. There's a massive, here, here, there's a massive central message found throughout the New Testament that Christ's coming has ensured there would be one people of God. I don't think you can read the New Testament without walking away with that. So being a light to the Gentiles was God's original purpose for the Jews, but Jesus succeeded where they failed. Now, don't hear anti-Semitism in that statement, right? Because we fail just as miserably at the things that we're called to do as well. But where they fail, Jesus succeeds. So Peter and Paul, let's look at a couple verses from Peter and Paul. Peter writes to a Christian audience consisting primarily of Gentiles, and he boldly applies some of the titles that had been previously the property of the Israelites alone. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is spoken of not just the Jews, but to all of us. Paul insists in his letters that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised or obey the ritual requirements of the Jewish law to be full members of God's family. We are justified by faith alone, not by anything we do. So the true Israelite or a member of the people of God is not simply someone who is physically descended from Abraham and outwardly obeys the Jewish law, but rather the converted believer in Christ. This is the people of God. So those, again, they were saved in the Old Testament by, faith, by grace through faith, looking forward to the Messiah. Now we are saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. Still the same salvation. Romans 2, 28-29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So conclusion of that thought. The church is not the replacement of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, I really think it's, uh, my conviction that is, it is unhelpful to draw a distinction between those two groups. Galatians three twenty-seven through 28. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. We are a part of the body. We're part of the body. Thank God, right? That it didn't stay primarily to the Jews. Now, our prayer, guys, should be as Gentiles. So what happens is it was mostly Jews, a handful of Gentiles. And now, post-Jesus, it is mostly Gentiles and a handful of Jews, right? So our prayer should be that we would be a light to the nations, and that includes the overall nation of Israel, those that are unbelieving. And the Bible talks about how God 
will soften their hearts, will bring them back in. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know how many of them it looks like. We don't know when exactly all that's going to happen. We should be praying for that. Loving them just like we do any other lost person. I think oftentimes, at least in my experience, when I see Gentiles interact with Jews, unbelieving Jews, uh, that, uh, oh, well, you know, they're never going to get it. I don't think that that's right or helpful or God-honoring. But we proclaim the gospel to them just like we do anybody else. So the Gentiles are the people. So we as Gentiles, I believe, are the people of God. But it's not because we're Gentiles. It's because we're saved by grace through faith. Okay? It's not because of our cultural heritage that we're the people of God. We're the people of God because of the salvation of God in our lives. So, God's people, now God's place. God's place in His followers both. God's place is in His followers both as individuals and as communities. The Lord Jesus, the true temple, has now ascended to heaven, but God continues to live in this fallen world. His temple is now His holy people. His temple is now His holy people. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God also lives in us as a community. Ephesians 2, 20-21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the sense in which the Holy Spirit indwells each of us and the sense in which the Holy Spirit indwells us as a body. Moving on, through the Holy Spirit we can live under God's rule and blessing. So we see God's people, those saved by by grace through faith, God's place, and then now the Holy Spirit Through the Holy Spirit, we can live under God's rule, God's blessing, God's law reflects His eternal character, right? He's righteous, He's good, He's holy. We can do nothing to obey it. We're powerless to escape the curse of the law, but through the Holy Spirit. So Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But Christ now sets us free from this bondage to sin, the law, and death by facing the penalty in our place. And through the Holy Spirit, we are able now to live up to God's standards. Again, it's not of our own doing. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. This is key. Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now we live in the Holy Spirit up to God's standards. Next thought, our experience during this age is both joyful and frustrating. Our experience during this age is both joyful and frustrating. God has given us so much, right? We have so much. And I don't mean materially, exclusively. God has given us so much in our walk with Christ, our walk in faith. But our experience is also sometimes frustration. 
frustrating because we experience just the little bite of the cookie, but we don't get the whole thing. We still live in the fallenness of this world and the fallenness of our flesh. Romans 8.23, I think, captures this well, or is this where we get it from? It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If there is not a groaning in you for the kingdom of God, to see that reality, then I think that's cause for reflection. Is there a groaning? It may be a weak one, but is there something groans for that? our bodies are not redeemed. It will, they will decay and die. The world we live in is not redeemed. It will continue to struggle against sin and to face opposition for our faith. But the Holy Spirit helps in working through this. Lastly, implications of the already and not yet. So implications of the fact that we live in the already and not yet. Alright, first one. Don't live as though you expect the church to be perfect. Don't live as though you expect the church to be perfect. So I just want to lower the expectations, all right? So like in the preaching, lower the expectations and you will be thoroughly satisfied every Sunday, okay? Don't live as though you expect the church to be perfect. Most people will say that they realize that no church is going to be perfect. But the second something goes wrong, they're off to find another church. Hmm. They keep looking for the perfect fit instead of learning to love the brothers and sisters and pastors God has given them. You're not going to find that perfect fit. Understand that your satisfaction comes from the groom of this marriage, not from the bride of this marriage. Right? Your satisfaction comes from the groom who is Jesus in this marriage not from the bride of this marriage who is the church. Now you experience to some level the satisfaction of Christ through the church, but it's ultimately, if you're pulling it all back to Jesus, then you recognize it's through Him. That does not mean that any church should work for you, though. Some churches don't teach the Bible. Like, that's probably a bad thing. Jesus is the only thing that should satisfy. So there's a sense in which we can live as though we expect the kingdom to be in its full reality. So when we hold the church to this level of perfection, of expectations, that when it doesn't reach that, we leave it and head off, then we're, we're living as though we expect the kingdom to be of, in full reality. But there's a fact that it's not. We're still made up of pre kingdom, fullness of reality, people. That was terrible. But yeah, people that have not experienced the fullness of the kingdom yet. We're not perfect. That's not an excuse for being stupid or idiots, right? But it's a reality check for us to try and live as a family. Next, don't expect your marriage to satisfy all your needs. There must be realistic expectations. Many of 
our marriages struggle because you believe in your marriage the kingdom is supposed to have already come. Right? Like, the new creation is here. My husband is a believer in Jesus. And so therefore, it should be as if the kingdom is here. I mean, I mean, most of us are going, yeah, dude, that's stupid. I don't ever think that way, but you live that way. When your husband fails and you get, or your wife fails and you get so mad at them, you're living as if there's, the kingdom is supposed to have already come in their lives and that they don't struggle with sin. They struggle with sin. And your responsibility is to live as if they're working towards that life. That's living, understanding, working. You can't live as if they're going to fulfill all of your needs because ultimately your marriage isn't meant to fulfill all of your needs. It's to point to the one who can fulfill all of your needs. Jesus. Right? Thirdly, don't fall into expecting perfection from your children and those around you. Your kids are still sinners, right? My little two sons are still sinners. Even if they are saved, if they've been redeemed, they still live in the sinful, unredeemed bodies, just like you, mom and dad, right? All right. And you both need Jesus equally. My question is this, though. When your kids misbehave, particularly in public, are you more concerned about their redemption and holiness or about your reputation? That's just a little side note. I think many times we're more concerned about our reputation than about their holiness. We should be concerned about their holiness, but don't expect them to be perfect. Here's the deal. Parents, your kids will rebel if you expect perfection and place unrealistic expectations on them. They will. Because think about it, you're expecting something that's not even possible to have taken place. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And when he does, you won't have to worry about it anymore anyways. So stop living as if the kingdom has come in its fullness and live that the kingdom has come in part. Lastly, don't overemphasize the not yet. The, what we've been talking about so far is over, overemphasizing the already. Like the kingdom has already, and we're putting too much emphasis on that. But we can't put too much emphasis on the not yet so as to compromise with the sinful world. So on the other hand, we need to be about the kingdom becoming a reality. So seeing the people of God live in the place of God underneath the rule of God. We need to be about that. Seeing holiness take place. We can't be so... We, basically, this would be our attitude if we were giving in to this warning here. Well, you know, Jesus isn't king yet. So we're just going to do our best and uh, we'll just let everything go, you know. Like, that would be overemphasizing the not yet. But instead, what Paul talks about beating our flesh, working hard. We work hard towards this to see the holiness of God become a reality in our families, in our lives, in our thought lives, all around us. We don't do this by compromising with sin. The balance is graciously attacking sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Almost done. 
Let me give you an overview. So we're in the proclaimed kingdom. If the Spirit dwells within you, then you will be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the Spirit is not within you, then you will proclaim, proclaim everything else but. And God is delaying the return of Jesus so that we have time to proclaim the gospel. And we don't know, again, we don't know who God has chosen. We just know that we're supposed to go and proclaim. And practically pretend as if everyone has been chosen. We go, we proclaim. And during this time, we are God's people living in God's place under God's rule. And even though it can be joyful and frustrating all at the same time, we have to understand, we've just had a taste. And I hope you see that the goodness in your life right now, the holiness of God, the character of God that we experience, it is just a taste of the goodness of God that we will experience in its fullness one day. So let's go back to the kitchen. You walked in, right? And the cookie, like the little nibble, can you all taste it right now? Can you taste the nibble? Like, oh, yummy. At some point in time, you'll get the rest of the cookie. Matter of fact, you'll get the whole batch. Not only will you get the whole batch, but you get the one who created the cookies. And my challenge to you is this. If you think heaven is all about streets of gold and big mansions, your view is way too small. If you think heaven is all about painlessness and physical healing, your view is way too small. It is all of this and infinitely more. There will come a day when we will behold the glory of our God in the face of of the one who died to save us. Even beginning to grasp what that means, we fail miserably at, right? Just to see that, forget the streets of gold, forget the mansions, right? Who cares? Just to see that face, the one who died, the one who's been glorified by his Father. Um, let's stop settling for the things in this world. Let's have a balance between the already and the not yet where we have a taste of the cookie and we long for that. But as a part of longing for that is, is to be about seeing the kingdom become a reality here in your marriage, in your family, where both you and your husband live as God's people, or you and your family members, brothers and sisters, live as God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And then one day, apart from sin, apart from pain, we will experience in its fullness for all of eternity the glory of God in the face of our Savior. And let's long for that. I want to pray for us.
and uh, we'll be dismissed. I just want to give you guys a few minutes um, here just to reflect. We're not going to have any music. just want to give you a few minutes to reflect on that and what that means to you. Let me pray for us. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And Father, we know that by him and through him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things that are visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And it's his face that we will behold. And Father, we know that he, Paul tells us that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That he is the head of the body, the church, that is us. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. And Father, we look forward to seeing his face, for in him all the fullness of God, all the fullness of you, Father, was pleased to dwell. And that through him, he has reconciled all things to himself. Things in earth, things on heaven. And he did this by making peace by the blood of his cross. And Father, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind and once we did evil deeds, He has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed we continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, which we has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which Paul became a minister, but instead we hold fast to that faith. So Father, I pray that as we seek to be your people in this kingdom, that, that we not become complacent, lazy Christians, but instead, Father, we look forward to the fullness of your kingdom, and we seek to see that become a reality each day of our lives and every aspect of our lives with everyone in our lives. And Father, we anxiously await when the not yet is no longer the words we use to describe this time. But we live in the reality, the fullness of your kingdom. And Father, let's pray. Thank you so much. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. I, actually, wait, 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 let me back up. Let me give us a couple quick announcements real quick. Um, in, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday, we're going to be starting the book of Luke. Uh, so I want to encourage you to read the book of Luke. 
Go ahead and read it now. Uh, if It should take roughly two hours to read the whole book, okay? It takes about an hour to read Mark, about two hours to read Luke. We picked Luke because that's how we do things around here, right? Uh, we do the longer and harder things. Um, but uh, read the book of Luke. Go ahead and begin getting yourself familiarized with that. We're going to take about 22-ish weeks, and I'm going to try to hit about a chapter a week in the book of Luke. Uh, that should be a little more possible than with Paul, because uh, Paul is very propositional, Luke is very narrative. So we're going to teach bigger chunks. So uh, go ahead and read the book of Luke, uh, and I think that that's the only uh, announcement that I have. Yep, that's it. You all are dismissed. <laughs> yeah, some of you might take four hours. That's fine.